Okay, we call this meeting to order at 6.32 p.m. And we're gonna be uh, doing roll call. Uh, so please write your hand and say here, well, say here when you hear your name. Um, Chair, Jory Hamilton. Commissioner Jonathan Stotts. Here. Melantha Jenkins. Present, here. Closo. Shiram. Raya. Here. Here. <laughs> Christian Lu. Here. <coughs> Sorry. Gilda Chung. Here. Okay. From staff, Parks and Community Services Director Lynn Sawastra. Here. Human Services Manager Jen Boone. Human Services Coordinator Antoinette Smith. Here. Youth Services Coordinator Reggie Schulberg. Here. Here. Okay. And Human Services Coordinator Amanda Jodd. Here. Okay. Um, next item in the agenda is the land acknowledgement. <clears throat> Commissioner Christian Liu will read the land acknowledgement this evening. Thank you, Gabby. We acknowledge that the Southern Salish Sea region lies on the unceded and ancestral land of the Coast Salish peoples. The Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Puyallup, Skykomish, Snoqualmie, Snohomish, Suquamish, and Tulalip tribes, and other tribes of the Puget Sound <clears throat> Salish people. And that present day city of Kirkland is in the traditional heartland of the lake people and the river people. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the first people who have reserved treaty rights and continue to live here since time immemorial and their ancestral heritage. Thank you very much, Christian. So who would, you, who would like to read the land acknowledgement for October meeting? Melantha Jenkins, volunteers. Thank you, Melantha. So the next item in the agenda is approval of the minutes. Um, motion to approve the August 22nd minutes. A motion to approve. I'll second. Uh, okay, so. There's one amendment. Sure, what is um, Jory's name is spelt wrong on page 4A. Or on page, I guess it's page three. Okay. Under business. Okay. Thank you very much. So noted uh, the amendments of the minutes. Um, can we go ahead and uh, uh, approve the minutes with the amendment? Mm -hmm. Any motions to approve? Motion to approve the amended meeting. Or motion to approve the amended meeting. Minutes. I'll second that. Okay. Thank you very much. So I think that's taken care of. <clears throat> Next item in the agenda is items from the audience. Um, Ray, is there any guest? No. In the audience? No. Okay. So now that we don't have any, any guests to speak, we have a special pre presentations uh, tonight to discuss the history of exclusion. Hey, on Gabby. The, say, excuse just, me. Yeah, just one moment. We got to go back to vote on the 
on the minutes, the amendment, take a vote? Excuse me? We have to take a vote for oh. the amendment on the minutes. Oh, okay. So it was, um, okay. So I was, uh, there was a motion and there was a, a, a second and then um, if everybody's in agreement, please say aye. 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 So that completes the approval of the minutes, correct, Annie? Or do we need as long as there any as long as there aren't any nays or abstentions? Do we have any nays? Any abstentions? Okay. So that um, means that uh, the meaning the meaning minutes from August twenty second have been approved. Thank you, Annie, very much. Thanks, Gabby. And we now have Jory. Oh, if perfect. Wanna, if you want to shift over, we can have Jory take over. Thank you. Thank you. I think, thanks for saving the day, Gabby. We have a special presentation tonight to discuss the history of exclusion on the east side. I'm going to pass it to Annie Smith, Human Services Coordinator, to introduce the presenters. So, um, just as a reminder, the this commission, when you were setting your um, uh, priorities at the beginning of the year and the work, um, kind of your work schedule as far as what's going to happen this week, one of the priorities that you um, identified was receiving information about current needs to kind of help guide the development um, of your own priorities in the next funding cycle. So um, I was part of a conversation that came up recently that had to do with transportation and specifically the light rail coming into um, the east side. And there was some interesting um, and not in a good way um, narrative around the others, right? Now having access to the east side. And it reminded me a lot about this particular um, presentation that I heard or sat in on um, last November. So um, I thought this was really relevant and it really, um, when we're thinking about the bigger, broader impact of racism, all kinds of racism that that happens and it goes unnamed and it and it continues to reverberate even today, right? So it doesn't just happen and go away, it continues. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce Guillermo Rivera from housing, he's a housing justice organizer with Eastside for All, Brady Nordstrom with Eastside Pro, who is an Eastside program coordinator at FutureWise, and Chris Randalls, founder and director of Complete Streets Bellevue. Thank you. Thank you, Annie, and thank you for the commission and to having us here. Gabby, it's great to see you in the screen. I don't know where you are seeing me, but uh, it's great to see you and great to see you all. And thank you for having us, us today. Um, first, um, like uh, Annie was saying, my name is Guillermo. I use the pronouns he, him, or el in Espanol. And I'm the Eastside, um, I'm with Eastside for All. And I'm the housing justice organizer. Eastside for All is an advocate organization uh, in, in the Eastside. Like we work in Kirkland, Redmond, and Balbion. Let me tell you, uh, first, I want to thank um, our co-sponsors on, on this uh, presentation. 
Brady and Nostrums from Future Wise for their support in this series and uh, to all the work that they're doing in the East Side. And thank also Chris Randall's from Complete Streets Value for their support and expertise in creating this uh, presentation. I'll tell you a little bit about how we start creating this presentation. Last year, we were doing uh, some advocate trainings and we did it in Spanish as well to all the Latino community. We bring a lot of uh, people that speak Spanish to talk about with them how to advocate. Uh, and then we asked them, like, uh, what else do you want to see? What else do you want to learn more? And they mentioned that during that presentation, we mentioned the redlining, and they didn't know anything about redlining. And they said, like, we want to learn more about that. We want to learn more about the history on the east side. So this when I went to FutureWise and Complete Streets Bellevue and said, like, hey, do you want to create co-create this? And they did it. We we did it, and this presentation was because the community want to hear more about it. We translated it to Spanish. I did it in Spanish, and then we said, like, probably a lot of people want to see this, and we've been doing this presentation or some kind of this presentation with some small changes for like a three or four times, four times, and. Every time that we do it, we say like, oh, probably next time we will have less people in the Zoom meeting. And every time that we do it, we have more people in the. the so, I mean, it's, it's been very, very successful, but that's a little bit of the story about this. So let me go. So this is the outline that we'll be talking today. And you need to to remember that we are seeing the east side as a region, right? Including Redmond, Bellevue, and Kirkland. But we have some specific things that we create just for you, for the Kirkland, um, for the city. I was surprised when I found out this. Like, uh, there was, there was, some things that they found the artifacts in the Beer, Beer Creek archaeological site in Redmond, that they were from more than 12,000 years ago. So people are being here in this area for more than 12,000 years ago, right? Then a lot of us came. I came from Mexico. Other ones came from other parts of the world, right? Um. So the, the east side was home for Native American tribes that uh, they were rich in identities. They have uh, cultures, they have histories, right? They were the Dunamish, the Snoqualmish, and the Mokulchuts. Uh This picture is uh, from the Esnoqualmi chief Pactman uh, that was taken in 1855. This is how the people think that the, the, the parts of the Lake Washington looks like during that time. 
So most cellars came around 1850s, but they came with diseases, right? Like at the smallpox to native tribes that they were reduced the populations from the tribes because the, the, the smallpox that they brought. Then in the 1850, the Donation Land Claims Act granted 320 acres to an each adult that's US citizen who arrived here. Do you think like the people that were here before they get part of that decision with the native tribes? Do you think like they asked them, what do you think about this? They didn't ask them, but they were part of the, the, the region, right? Instead of they ask them what they think about this new uh, Donation Land Claim Act, they create territories and reservations, right? And this pattern of pushing unwanted people to less and less valuable lands has continued through the 20th century and is still happening today through the economic forces. So now I will pass it to my good friend Brady that he will continue the presentation, then Chris will take over and then I came back at the end with you. Yes. Yermo, one question. Thank you. Yes. Um, what Do we have any idea what the size of the Indian population was in this area? And then what happened, What how far it decreased with the smallpox and then the other uh, causes of uh, death? Sure. Okay. Right. Okay. Thank you. All right, well, um, well, thank you all again for the opportunity to speak. Uh, I'm Brady Nordstrom. I work at FutureWise. Uh, we do um, land use policy, which obviously intersects with uh, housing, with transportation, with the environment, climate change, and all these other things. My specific work is um, in coalition work around housing on the east side, so trying to find solutions to affordable housing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'll just I'll continue the presentation here. So. We're talking about um, the the economic expansion that fueled growth on the east side, and so we're going to start seeing some photograph more and more photographs here as well. That's down uh, downtown Newcastle. Um, I think in the 1850s um, there, which is really interesting. Let's, uh, let's keyboard. the keyboard. There we go. All right. So let me make sure. There we go. All right, so um, I think it's important to point out, I mean, th these patterns are still continuing. That the, it, After European settlements, um, the industry fueled a lot of the growth in the east side. So um, there was mining, logging, usually to clear land for farming, um, hunting, farming itself, trading, all of these, all of these activities. Um, so, so Bellevue was settled by um, William Maidenbauer and Aaron Mercer in 1869. And some of the industries there were farming, logging, sawmills, coal mining. Um, Kirkland uh, was founded as a company town. And um, you all might know more about this, but uh, a steel industrialist named Peter Kirk, who arrived in the 1880s. Um, and th this uh, this steel mill eventually failed, but it gave way to other industries in the same way that we'll talk a little bit about Boeing and some of these other forces that uh, dr drove economic growth later. But um, and, and interestingly, 
uh, Kirkland was the original hub of the East side. And um, there was a ferry to Seattle that we'll talk about a little bit later and that, and how that plays into the whole history of the East side. Um, but I, I found this little tidbit recently that Kirkland's uh, chamber of commerce in 1926 called it the gateway to Seattle. And that was, uh, so it really shows, um, you know, I think that Kirkland's identity is much different than that now. So, um, Redmond, it was settled in 1871 by Luke McRedmond and Warren Perigo. Um, interestingly, uh, saloons were a big part of the economy there, but lumber mills, um, trading, um, there's also a, ra uh, a railway founded in 1889. Um, and there's that plays a key part in some of the history later that we're going to talk about um, uh, in the east side. And so here's some more um Here's some more photos. That one in the upper left, that is uh, Coal Creek, the mine itself. Um, up there in the upper right, uh, those are loggers, I believe, in Bothell. And interestingly, you don't see trees like that around very much anymore. Uh, but yeah, that that's how big the, the and old the forests were here, uh, you know, not 150 years ago. Um, and then interestingly, whalers in Maidenbower Bay, um, after the... Uh, connection of Lake Washington to the Puget Sound, um, their uh, whalers would come in and get repairs and things like that in Maidenbower Bay. Um, and then that there's, there's, there's pictures of Coal Creek miners there as well. I really love seeing the, the faces of people uh, from, from these. That's so, um, uh, the east side was mostly rural until after World War II. So um, uh, from from the original sort of European uh, uh, settlements. Um, uh, so this this here is is a promotion for the um, Bellevue's Strawberry Festival. And um, this was to showcase one of the prize crops of Bellevue. And in the I believe is in the 1920s. I'm trying to, to do this without notes, um, but there the. Uh, this festival had drawn about 15,000 people, which was five times the size of Bellevue at the time. So it was a major draw for people. Um, and I keep, uh, I feel like I'm, I, I'm doing a lot of the foreshadowing here. And uh, a lot of these crops were grown by uh, Japanese farmers in Bellevue. And that's another painful part of the history of the East side that we're going to talk about a bit later as well. But it's very interesting that, uh, yeah, the, the prize of, uh, that this is, it was all linked together that that um, there are these these Japanese immigrants as well. So, um, all right, this is just an example. So I was talking a little bit about those whalers that would come in um, and I can't see the top there, but th this is the shipyard. So this is Kirkland that we're looking at here. Um, and there, but before World War II, the Kirk Kirkland's population was around 2000 people. Um, and the shipyard in Lake Washington, it would attract about 8,000 people um, that would come in. And they built 29 warships. They repaired 477 ships, a major operation. And um, like everything, this is all connected. We're going to talk a little bit later about how, um, I mean, I don't want to take the steam out of anyone else's presentation. So I'll just I'll just leave it as some more fo foreshadowing there. Um, yeah, so... Um, I think that this is this is where we start getting into some of the themes that have developed on the east side, that there was this um, upper middle class vision of individualistic home ownership that's been really a, a major part of the expansion of the east side. Um, and this is rooted, I, I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes in economic exclusion. Um, and this this history is is old. Uh, Medina and Yarrow Point uh, were known as the Gold Coast 
in the 1890s um, with mansions being there even before that. And um, it's still, as we know, one of the wealthiest zip codes in the entire U.S., in in the world, actually. It's one of the wealthiest places in the entire world. So um, the pre-suburban east side, so this is just a little piece of evidence. When uh, So Chris and I, we had some conversations with um, a local historian when we were researching this project. And um, there's there's this pamphlet that says every man's home is different. So it's this idea that you're living in a u- unique place and that's part of your identity uh, or was part of the identity of living in the east side is that individualism. And so we're going to talk a, a bit more about um, the connection of this to housing, but um, suburbanization equals access to more people. And so there was um, interestingly, like we see resistance now to things like multifamily housing and other types of diverse housing. Um, early on, there was resistance to suburban style developments because it wasn't unique. Um, and um, Lake Hills, which was the first suburban style development in the east side, was called Fake Hills. Um, and there's uh, historical documentation of that happening, too. So um, we're getting a little bit further along here. And as uh, I mean, this is kind of like we're moving into the post-war period. And um, of course, the east side has been linked to Seattle economically for quite a while. Um, after the I-90 bridge opened in 1940, um, there is a driving culture that also developed, and Chris is going to share a little bit more about how that has manifested recently as well. Um, but th- there was people would drive in and out of Seattle usually, but um, uh, it was uh, a lot of East Side cities were bedroom communities. Um, for example, to use Lake Hills as another example, seventy-five percent of the people there worked at Boeing, and they would commute back and forth every day. Um, there weren't, there wasn't a hospital on the east side um, for a while, and so people would have to go over to get medical care as well. Um, so by the mid to late 20th century, however, um, there was a, a boom in the east side that was separate from Seattle, and um, Bellevue Square Shopping Center was a major point in this. Um, in 1946, when Kemper Freeman uh, Senior opened this, it really increased uh, economic activity where people didn't have to go somewhere else to buy things they could uh, invest in the east side. Um, Microsoft headquarters that we all know about in 1986. And this is surprising as well that there weren't really skyscrapers in Bellevue until the 1980s. This is all very recent. Um, And uh, so, and and since then, and this is another part that we're all more familiar with, that there's been massive growth in technology and service industry since then, which has a lot to do with um, the industries that preceded. So, um, these are just fun photos that compare. Uh, that's downtown Bellevue in 1958. A um, lot of open space. And then that's downtown Bellevue in 2021. And even since then, we're seeing new skyscrapers go up. And then here, this is downtown Kirkland. That's the ferry again in downtown Kirkland in 1949. That is like directly downtown. So we're very close to that right now. And then um, that's a more present day photo. And you see how we have you know, maybe the maybe two to three stories max in that photo on the left. And then we have, you know, mid-rise to um, uh, buildings and steel frame construction on the other side. So just a reminder that it wasn't that long ago where, I mean, and this was still when Kirkland was considered the hub of the east side um, in 1949. So uh, just a little bit of visual comparison there. So I'm going to hand it off to Chris and he'll talk about how east side has been shaped by uh, transportation and access. 
Brady is substantially taller than me, so let's move this down a little bit. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, Chris Randalls, I'm the founder and director of Complete Streets Bellevue. Uh, we're an organization that works on issues uh, of transportation and multimodal transportation in particular in Bellevue. Um, but as Brady kind of alluded to at the beginning, um, that issue itself is related to so many other issues that are of equal import, such as housing and land use. Um, and so really honored to partner with both Eastside for All and uh, Future Wives uh, in working on this presentation. Um, so I'm going to kind of build off of what Brady has been doing so far and what Guillermo started with. Uh, because in addition to looking at the history of our region through this lens of economic growth and development, um, you can also look at it through this lens of transportation and access, and in particular, who different modes of transportation enable or who they have summarily not enabled. Um, transportation has been used, uh, as Brady alluded to, to kind of create an us versus them mentality that I'll go into it a little bit later. Uh, and finally, I'll just say that there is a circular relationship, a positive fee or a feedback relationship between transportation and growth. Uh, transportation infrastructure itself, what gets built where, has itself been influenced by the patterns of economic growth and development in our region and where that growth has, has occurred. But in turn, the infrastructure and where it's gotten built has influenced how our region has grown and developed. So... In terms of access, I uh, have to start that in the early 20th century, the east side was absolutely hard to get to. Um, for a long time, as you folks may know, the Kirkland Ferry, which is on the left there, was the main way to get to the east side. Uh, there were other ferries on Lake Washington, but Kirkland was by far uh, the main destination at the time because of the economic opportunity that was presented by the shipyards that Brady mentioned. Uh, the ferry still took a long time, though. Uh, residents of the East Side and Gold Coast communities often described the East Side area as being on island time just because the pace of life felt slower. It felt more relaxed and disconnected from the hustle and bustle of the city to the West. Um, you could, of course, also always take the long way around Lake Washington, but that took even more time. So the ferries were really the main way. Um, but everything changed really when the floating bridge opened uh, in uh, 1940, today uh, the I-90 corridor. Um, the floating bridge, which is on the shores of South Bellevue in the Anatai neighborhood, uh, actually shifted the dynamics of the east side and the center of power on the east side and made Bellevue kind of the new hub and the center of desirability where Kirkland previously had that role. Um, this was absolutely cemented when, in 1950, uh, the automobile ferry, the one I mentioned previously, was actually closed down in Kirkland. And so the bridge really became the main way to get across uh, the lake. The bridge itself helped build, uh, helped kind of cement this suburban, auto-oriented and upper middle class version, uh, vision of the east side, rather. Um, after World War II in particular, real estate ads sold Bellevue as, quote, 15 minutes to your home in the country, kind of using this language of uh, the east side being an escape from that hustle and bustle that I mentioned before. Um, so this vision of Bellevue being this new metropolis of the east side and then the floating bridge itself even uh, were both spearheaded in large part by Miller Freeman, who is the grandfather of Kemper Freeman Jr. Both of these games are going to come up today for various reasons. Um, so just... Hold that pin for a second. Um, so since the east side was inherently structurally hard to access, um, it became kind of this escape for upper middle class and upper class families, um, which, of course, given the history of this country, uh, has furthered past patterns of racial exclusion. Um, transportation networks, in turn, both reflected this exclusion and uh, helped contribute to it, actually. Um, so, for example, um, unlike Seattle, 
Uh, public housing on the east side in the early 20th century did not allow non-white tenants, but Seattle's public housing authority did. So black ship workers who worked in Kirkland were forced to take the long ferry ride every day to come into work, whereas um, white workers did not have to necessarily undergo that same commute, which obviously affects quality of life. Um, there's also well-documented history of how uh, in the wake of mandatory desegregation of schools in Seattle, many people actually flocked to the east side, uh, which, of course, furthers patterns of exclusion and who can actually feel like they belong on the east side. Um, transportation has absolutely played a role in this. Uh, the floating bridge providing easy access to the east side uh, for those who have a car, combined with Bellevue's particular history of automobile-centric development through wide roads and easy connections uh, through those roadways, it sends a particular message, both functionally and kind of conceptually, honestly, that uh, the east side in Bellevue in particular uh, are only for those who are able to afford all the expenses and maintenance that comes with owning a car. Um, this paradigm has continued even throughout today um, because key actors in um, local um, civic life have attempted to further advance the notion of automobile supremacy or that um, owning a car is the right way to get around the east side. Uh, in 2009, for example, Kemper Freeman Jr., grandson of Miller Freeman mentioned earlier, actually sued to stop the light rail expansion into Bellevue. And the suit did ultimately fail. Luckily, we're having the starter line open in 2024 next year. Um, but he did still have a significant say and sway in the ultimate development of the line. Um, it's intentionally and inconveniently farther away from his mall and central downtown Bellevue, instead being located kind of to the east of the uh, transit center in Bellevue currently. And all this does carry kind of an implied message, honestly, of that if you can't afford a car, you shouldn't be on the east side. Um, and people without cars already exist on the east side. Uh, I was one of those people at one point in time. 10% um, of Bellevue households do not own cars. I imagine that statistic is similar in Kirkland. Um, and of course, not all the people who don't own cars are low income, of course, but it's still a really harmful message to imply that, you, that people without cars don't belong when they already exist and are a part of our city. So... Getting a little bit conceptual for a sec, uh, but are a little bit kind of meta. Um, let's kind of get into this fundamental question of exclusion, what it really is. Like, key to exclusion is this question of who. Who is the in-group? Who is the out-group? Who belongs? Who doesn't? And who says who belongs? It's all about power. It's all about um, that whole analysis. Um, the precise answers to these questions definitely change over time. Um, and really the goal, as we have been giving this presentation out in the community, uh, has been uh, to convey a sense of agency, that these are how things have been in the past, and there are some patterns that continue to this day. But because these things have changed over time and will continue to change, we all have agency in the community to affect and to say who, to be more intentional and explicit about how everybody can belong in our communities. So Brady started with this a little bit, and I'm going to, so good spoiler alert. Uh, but uh, let's go back a little bit, rewind a little bit into uh, early Bellevue history, um, because Japanese people did begin settling in Bellevue in around the 1890s, uh, usually as farmers. Uh, some would rent land, farm a plot for a few years, and then move on to another plot. Uh, until the passage of the alien land law uh, later into the 20th century, uh, many Japanese families were actually able to amass enough wealth to own land in the city. Um, 
And the large Japanese population actually had a significant impact on Bellevue and its institutions in the early 20th century. Uh, many students in Bellevue schools were Japanese of Japanese descent. Uh, they established their own institutions where they could practice their language and culture, such as a community center that was uh, north of present-day Bellevue Square. Um, or they also established their own economic institutions, such as the Bellevue Vegetable Growers Association. Um, this actually helped bring a train warehouse into the Mid Lakes area today, kind of the western edge of the Wilburton neighborhood, um, so that farmers can more efficiently ship and sell their product throughout the region. Um, it's also important to note that many Japanese people are actually the ones that helped make land usable in the city. And what I mean by that is when Bellevue started or when Bellevue initially, before Bellevue really got um, settled by uh, Western settlers, it was very heavily forested. Uh, much of it was forest and marshland that is really hard to develop. Um, and from the city's origin, it was actually Japanese laborers who did the dangerous work of clearing the land. Uh, this process involved months of backbreaking work. Uh, it actually also, in many cases, involved dynamite, uh, which obviously imposes, imposes, um, has an inherent risk to it. Um, several people actually lost limbs and a few more died. Um, so this work was incredibly backbreaking. Um, and for many, it was labor that was being done that made the land actually usable for the landowner. They did not actually own the land on which they were doing this labor. Um, so they literally helped make the city what it was, bringing wealth and prosperity to the city, enabling this land to be developed and farmed, but it, um, they were not as necessarily able to reap the benefits of that wealth. Um, Japanese Nikkei farmers uh, often grew famous uh, strawberries and other crops. Uh, Bellevue became known for this, as Brady mentioned, uh, with an annual strawberry festival in the early 20th century. So in spite of the contributions of Japanese people to early Bellevue history and uh, its cultural, uh, the people's cultural institutions, um, there were people who actively sought to demonize them and exclude them from the city. Um, and this is where we have to uh, we have to return to uh, Miller Freeman. Um, and I do have to be explicit and say that uh, Miller Freeman was a white supremacist, full stop. Um, he did not believe that non-white people could belong, not just on the east side, but on the west coast writ large. Um, and unfortunately, he wasn't just some Joe Schmo off the street uh, with these beliefs living in isolation. He was a wealthy man with connections to politicians, generals, media outlets. Uh, institutions, uh, which he used to publicly advocate for policies that would advance these beliefs. Um, he used his connections in media to regularly publish articles and op-eds, sharing his positions with the wider community. Um, he would often further conspiracy theories, such as that Japanese people were in actually really loyal to the emperor of Japan and were merely waiting for the call to be able to fight for him. Um, he was also un unfortunately active in state politics. Uh, he literally founded the Anti-Japanese League of Washington in 1916, um, and even had uh, connections, direct connections to presidential administrations in the early 20th century. Um, he frequently claimed that his prejudices were not based on race, but that it was simply a matter of common sense. Um, I'm not going to read the quote that's on the screen, but it is there, and that was something he said. So... I, a lot of the information on this particular section of the presentation, uh, our group got from the amazing book uh, pictured on the right there, Strawberry Days, um, by uh, David Nywert, who goes into the topic in much more detail than what I'm going to be able to in this brief presentation. Um, but to put it briefly, Freeman was an instrumental part in this process of restricting Japanese land ownership. Um, there's a direct line that can actually be drawn between his advocacy, his specific advocacy, and various policies and laws passed in the ensuing decades that systemically, systematically denied people of Asian descent wealth and prosperity. 
Um, I mentioned already that he founded the Anti-Japanese League of Washington, which led to the state alien land law, which actually forbade Japanese people from owning land. And so this is how most Japanese people were systematically caught off from most land ownership. Um, it was Freeman's direct advocacy at the local level that brought this. And so just his direct involvement. Uh, and again, Nywert makes this case incredibly clear in his book. Um, so yes, I mentioned that Freeman actually had connections, direct connections to presidential administrations. He wrote to those administrations and military leaders um, to uh, adv direct advocacy that actually eventually contributed to the Immigration Act of 1924, uh, which prevented the immigration of Japanese people into the United States at that time. Uh, further advocacy, he just couldn't stay quiet, uh, went to all the way to 1942, uh, where President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, passed internment, which was a culmination of these patterns of exclusion in response to public pressure from important figures uh, like Freeman, who directly and publicly called for it. Um, this unfortunately permanently left scars in uh, the Japanese community in Bellevue, um, because when internment started, a community leader uh, a Japanese community leader wrote an op-ed acknowledging that this was just goodbye for a time, that his community would be back. But during the war, uh, opposition grew, fomented in large part, again, publicly by Freeman, that showed that his community was not wanted back. Japanese families that rented land overwhelmingly didn't return. Uh, the few that did own land that were able to amass enough wealth to purchase land before the alien land law um, they would return and see their houses ransacked or they would be threatened or just made generally to not feel welcome in the city. Um, something interesting to me as a transportation advocate and as an avid user of East Trail and the cross Brooklyn Corridor, um, doing a little bit of research into this, um, it actually, Nywert mentions in his book how uh, Bellevue residents, Be Japanese Bellevue residents, were actually sent to a train depot in Kirkland and then sent away via the train line that is today East Trail. And it goes, so imagine going through your community, going through the Wilberton to what is today the Wilberton area and where a lot of Japanese families had set, had set up their lives and livelihoods. And you're being taken away through that, through your neighborhoods, through your community, and you're not knowing when you're gonna come back. Um, so an absolutely harrowing experience. Um, So unfortunately, as depressing as that all is, this that was not the only way um, in which uh, patterns of exclusion uh, and uh, were furthered by uh, laws and policies on the books. Uh, many of these policies are actually directly related to housing and who can own land in a given community. Um, racially restrictive covenants existed, which restricted those, quote, other than the right white race from owning land. Um, there's some examples on this slide here. Feel free to read them. Um, and there's several others that are listed on a great University of Washington website. They've amassed a whole database from East Side and Seattle communities where racially restrictive covenants were in place, um, including one from uh, Clyde Hill, which is not on this slide, but it was uh, still on the books in 1946. Um, so I really want to emphasize that, that this was not that long ago. Uh, many people in our communities um, were alive during this time. Um, many of you probably know people who were alive during this time, frankly. Um, and for reasons we'll get into a little bit later, these policies still have far-reaching impacts even today. I can get my notes together. Thank you for your patience. So continuing with this theme of housing, um, exclusionary zoning is a set of laws that place restrictions on the types of homes that can be built in a particular neighborhood. 
Um, this was the concept of zoning uh, originally existed for what you might consider a noble purpose. It was meant to keep dirty industrial uses and fire hazards away from homes. Um, but in the early part and middle of the 20th century, zoning laws really became weaponized, frankly, to maintain higher property values and discriminate against people of color, especially the concept of single family zoning, which is the designation where only one house can be built per plot of land. Um, so the relationship between exclusionary zoning and high housing costs, just to make that a bit more explicit for this presentation, uh, is that zoning, especially single family zoning, places this artificial constraint on, a, on a, how many housing units can be built on land. And so it divorces housing supply from any actual demand that a community might have for housing. When we can't build enough homes due to land use restrictions, uh, demands for homes increases and housing costs go up because the supply can't grow to match that ensuing demand. Um, single family zoning in particular, of key interest to my organization, uh, creates the stereotypical suburban pattern of development uh, that you see on the screen there, which is kind of more sprawly, more auto-oriented, um, and uh, it keeps people further away from goods and services. Um, this pattern of development thrived a lot uh, after uh, World War II, um, such as through the GI Bill, the, white, the dream of the white picket fence, uh, but have to acknowledge that dream itself was only um, made available to white veterans, not veterans of color. Um, so the East Side suburbanized as the East Side grew, it largely followed this pattern of growth. Um, and I want to talk about my neighborhood of Lake Hills. Actually, it's already come up a little bit, but I'm a resident. Um, and in this development, which was uh, started in the mid 20th century, only one home was allowed per residential property, which, as I mentioned, creates this pattern of car dependency. Uh, people would commute into Seattle or other commercial areas for work. Uh, many, if not most people in the Lake Hills neighborhood actually work for Boeing. I believe Brady mentioned that earlier. Um, but these patterns of exclusionary zoning actually still exist today because just today, about 75% of Bellevue's land area is actually zoned for single family. Uh, stats are similar for other east side cities. Um, and we do see a lot of pushback today against changing this paradigm, but it really is just kind of a continuation of a long standing pattern. Because even if you go back in time and you look at when these land use zones were created and designated, uh, there was still this stigma against multifamily developments. For example, I can cite a specific example of a multifamily development across the Lake Hills Shopping Center um, because it was felt that residents of this, of this uh, housing uh, development would disrupt neighborhood character, not be connected to the community. Um, also, it were some explicit and implicit fears that it would bring people of lower socioeconomic status and people of color. Um, this advocacy against multifamily housing continues today uh, through this stigma against renters. I myself am a renter, but there you see this stigma um, that we're not as connected to the community, that we're not as embedded in the community, and that we may not care about it as much, even though we do want to be seen as neighbors of, of, of our community and as part of our community. Um, as mentioned on the slide, there were a lot of actual institutions, legal institutions, that were used to maintain this paradigm. Um, we mentioned in this slide the example of the East Bellevue Community Council, which was a community council um, in my neighborhood of Lake Hills. As y'all are probably aware, there was a similar community council of the Houghton Community Council for Kirkland. Uh, and these jurisdictions had special veto authority over land use decisions. And it wasn't necessarily a policymaking body, but it was a body that was able to say, no, we don't want to approve what city council has, what, what our city council has already approved, we're just going to veto it. Um, and so that was inherently an inequitable institution that at least in 
oh, I didn't mean to. I just wanted to. I just wanted to add really quickly that um, there's like four. Uh, Kirkland's one of the uh, is the only East Side city that has passed a missing middle ordinance, um, and um, aspects of that were vetoed by Houghton Community Council. And there's a lot of examples of exactly what he's talking missing, about. In, missing. Um, miss, missing, uh, so um, more like uh, townhomes or a, a, like allowing more than one mm. home per lot. Kirkland was the one of the first cities in Washington state, but the, fir- the only city still, to my knowledge, in the east side that allows that. Um, and Houghton uh, uh, Community Council vetoed aspects of that. And then in, and there's just like, there are real examples in Kirkland of this happening. I just yeah. wanted to put a yeah. fine point. Thank on. you for that additional context. And that is, that is actually really important context. So I can speak from the Bellevue perspective, but Brady is a lot more knowledgeable on kind of the regional context. Um, so I can definitely cite other examples in Bellevue where our community council was used as a tool for exclusion, frankly, um, to veto land use ordinances around uh, homelessness uh, services uses and around um allowing um, people of um, different families to be able to actually cohabitate together. Um, the EBCC was an agent to kind of block that. Um, so as y'all may know, though, um, HB 1769 was a law that passed in the 2022 legislative session uh, that actually abolished community councils today. Um, but we do still see um, kind of this pattern um, of um, advocacy of protecting single family neighborhoods as if they are a an entity that needs to be protected it kind of frames it in this us versus them in this in this inherent perception of risk that there is a danger or a or a fear of the other um and i think that uh land use policy today in a lot of our cities um reflects that um So it's already come up a little bit today, but I'll give a brief kind of overview. Um, Redlining was a discriminatory practice that restricted where people could buy residences based upon their race and ethnicity. Um, Banks, mortgage companies, and other lenders uh, refused loans for property transactions, which they deemed as risky. Um, However, deciding on which parcels were risky investments was done based upon a neighborhood's percentage of people of color. Um, This map on the right actually shows a redlining map of Seattle in 1936, um, showing how people would be unable to get home loans for large swaths of the central district, uh, an area that was overwhelmingly populated by black residents and other people of color. Um, Have to be explicit, this was racist exclusion and endorsed and perpetuated by the federal government um, that has led to significant impacts that persist to this day. And we're going to get into how that affects modern day um, patterns of exclusion in a little bit. Um, but if you want to research more, if you want to learn more about this, I cannot recommend enough uh, the book, uh, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. I believe he has a sequel now, right? A, a second book that I have not actually read yet, but I imagine it is just as enlightening as um, that one. Um, and just to dispel any notion that these are historically distant policies, um, there's evidence that black and brown households were actually being unfairly targeted with subprime mortgage offers in advance of the 2008 housing crisis. Um, a practice that the ACLU has deemed uh, described as modern redlining because race was used as a factor to decide loan terms. So it's just another way that black and brown people were particularly hit hard even today during the Great Recession. And that obviously has impacts for years and years. So up to this point, we've talked about the ways in which through legal codes and policies, actual laws on the books, a certain vision of who can belong on the east side has historically been furthered to exclude black and brown people. Um, but this exclusion has actually also been advanced through off the books, uh, through social pressures and other informal non-legal methods. 
Um, for example, a black family may not be explicitly restricted from living in a neighborhood, but they're made to feel uncomfortable buying a home or from living in a certain neighborhood. Their children, once they move in, may be made fun of at the local school district. They may be followed home or tailed when driving on the roadway. Um, they may receive death threats at their house that require reporting to the FBI. Um, and unfortunately, none of this is hypothetical. Um, this is the reality of many Black people who moved into Eastside neighborhoods in the mid-20th century. Um, Tim Martin was actually the first Black man in Lake Hills, and he had all the above happen to him and more. Um, and he's an interesting case in, in, in big quotes around interesting, um, because although we've mainly moved away from such explicit forms of racial exclusion in many ways, um, the definition of who belongs in our communities has absolutely changed over time. Um, at first, it was only white people who could belong. Um, now, at least in Bellevue, there are absolutely certain class connotations. Uh, and Tim Martin himself was an example of this. Um, he was a well-to-do worker at Boeing, lived in Lake Hills. Um, and although there was a lot of negative pushback when he first moved into the Lake Hills community, um, slowly over time, it honestly seems like the community stopped perceiving his blackness. Um, in interviews, he recounted times when people went to his door asking him to sign petitions to prevent other black families from moving into Lake Hills. Um, so he acknowledged that this that was just he was beside himself with that because how could they how could they think that he would want to advocate for that? Um, so let's see. Okay, moving on. There we go. And this is finishing up my slides here before I hand it back to Guillermo. Um, I want to get a little bit deeper into how these historical patterns and historical events kind of lead to continued exclusion today. Um, because today it may be illegal to explicitly exclude people from housing because of race, but exclusions around class can very often reinforce these historical wrongs and perpetuate historical racial inequities. Um, because for better or for worse, um, home, home ownership in America is the vehicle, main vehicle for wealth generation. Um, it provides a way to pass down wealth intergenerationally. Um, however, when Black people were systemically prevented from acquiring property, uh, they were thus prevented from being able to build equity and wealth that in turn affects descendants. Uh, it contributes to a wider racial wealth gap that persists even to this day. Um, it affects where people are able to actually live and call home. Um, in this presentation, um, we have Bellevue statistics, and I believe we actually do have Kirkland statistics later, so I'll wait for that. Um, but in Bellevue, only 2.6% of Bellevue's population are Black as of the 2020 census. Um, this is compare, compare this with uh, many communities in South King County, which are as high as 15 to 20%. And we really have to ask, we have to be explicit, and we have to ask what policies led to these disparate outcomes. And it's the same ones that have led to housing exclusion and classism today. Um, and so as we in the community, as government bodies, as we work to address and uh, fix these disparities, we have to acknowledge the racist history and intentionality with which these policies were constructed. And so we therefore have to be intentional in undoing these processes. And I will pass back to Guillermo. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So before I go to this other section, I mean, we're talking about Okay, this happened in the 1950s. This happened in the 1800s. I want to tell you a little story about a friend that happened in the last six months. He finally get the money to buy a house. He buy a house in Bothell. A lot of people, he move in. 
a lot of people came to say hi to him with cookies and fruit and was a lot of people coming to his house but he hear a woman in the back like they were talking here and there was another woman talking over there that she was saying like a now i know why our houses are getting cheaper this man is a white a, a black man and this woman was thinking that their houses are getting cheaper because a black man move into his her neighborhood and this happened to my friend less than six months ago so this is this is thing like that they're happening right they're continuing so <laughs> they said will continue growing right we know that tech companies will be coming to the to the east side and you as a human resources commission and the city council, you are making decisions that will affect a lot of the generations that are coming. The the, the side will continue growing. We like it or no, right? So, but we were saying um, how diverse the area is, right? In 1990s, 14% of the Bellevue population, they speak another language than English. In 2019, it's 44% of the Bellevue population that speak another language than English. This is uh, where the people were born um, by cities. Uh, you can see Bellevue has almost 40%. Redmond have four, more than 42%. Kirkland has only 24% of the population that they were living here, that they were born outside of the US. And you can see in the graph, okay, the white um, race is still like a 67%, right? In compared with another cities that the whites are uh, minority now. So why is Kirkland different than the other cities that we are here, right? I think like this is a question that you need to be asking, right? When you are doing your job, like is the type of jobs that are growing here? Is the specific policy changes that you make? Is the location, is more houses opportunities? I don't know the answers for these questions, right? But you, I think like you need to be asking those questions when you are doing um, your job in this commission. And I know that this is a lot of information to absorb. Uh, I think we send the presentation because I saw some of you taking pictures. Like you can have the presentation with all the notes that we have there. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm telling you right now. <laughs> um, but I, uh, how does your work on commission and leadership can disrupt or perpetuate these patterns in the city? I feel like that is a question that you also need to be asking to yourselves, right? And I want to thank you for your time. And I don't know if we have time for questions, uh, comments, concerns. Yes. So um, one, one second. Um, would we're gonna go around, everyone's just gonna raise their hand like you just did and just be mindful of other commissioners and I will call on people if needed, but if not, they can call on people. 
Um, at first, before we go to Commissioner Jenkins, I want to thank you for your time. And my wish is that we can help you with awareness. Uh, this is very educational. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you for doing the work and the research to put it together. Um, a lot of the stuff that you were mentioning um, is a lot of things that I feel like should be common knowledge. Um, but unfortunately, you don't hear this type of stuff unless you're taking an introduction to Asian American studies class or something that's really going to tell you the history of some of these different communities that we're talking about. Um, I think that more people do need to hear it. And I wonder if like, you're talking about people in the community wanna hear it, who are those people? Um, I have twins that are in middle school and they just started US history. But I'm wondering like, why don't we have a presentation like this, like maybe in a leadership program or something? And has that something that's been thought about? I mean, we, like I mentioned, we did this presentation already like a four times. And at the end, they ask us to record it. So this presentation is recorded and is in um, it's in our YouTube uh, website, in the Eastside YouTube. If you go there, this presentation is there. And we are hearing from the communities a lot. Okay, we need to hear more about this, right? But um, the school districts also tell us, like, we need to hear more about this. And I, I completely agree with you. Okay, this should be more public to everybody. But we did what we can. We put it in YouTube. Okay. Thank you again for this uh, excellent presentation, eye-opening. I think my question is, since you said, you know, we get to decide and have a role to play in how do we change our city. Can you talk to us about some examples of cities that maybe have gone through a transformation of what they did to not just, you know, build housing and stuff, but also to attract different kinds of people from different cultures, make it more appealing for them. So if you could maybe give us some examples of cities that have gone through this transition, that, you know, I would really appreciate to hear more information about that. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, this, um, I'll take a stab at it. This may be an unsatisfying answer. I think, um, I don't. I don't know if I can think of a city that has gone through kind of a rapid comprehensive transformation to really address all these pieces of the puzzle that we're talking about. Um, I think there are absolutely examples that uh, we could point to, um, not right now, only because my mind is blanking. Uh, but I, I, I think an answer to this question is maybe looking at little things, little projects that maybe some cities have done to try to foster more equitable engagement, um, more housing diversity, more transportation um, networks. Um, and I think that's something we could probably get back on. Right? Yeah. And and I think just uh, like maybe another way to think about this, I, I, I agree that um, that I can think about individual um, uh, like there, there might be initiatives or there might be things like that that cities have been doing. But I think that there are um, policies. I mean, uh, I mentioned that. Uh, for example, Kirkland was the first city that that opened up more opportunities for uh, for for housing growth in single family neighborhoods. And I hear over and over again, but it's not truly affordable. But like, I think the important thing is to think about like it's it's a question of capacity and it's a question of relative affordability because a, a teardown on a lot on a on a, a lot. Let's say there's a single lot. A teardown, and if you're going to build a bigger building, it's going to be relatively more expensive than if you put two, three, four, five homes on that lot. 
And so it's, it's like about making room. It's a structural problem though. I think it's in our, the way that our financial systems work. I mean, there's, um, there's this group that I've been, I was following for a little while and at some of the meetings, but it's, uh, it's called the black homeownership initiative that there's a huge, um, gap in, uh, uh homeownership with black people in the U S compared to almost every other group, except in like native and yeah, I think native and black populations have the lowest homeownership rates. And so, but the people in the rooms are like mortgage brokers and bankers and housing developers and because it's a system-wide problem. So I don't know if there is an easy answer there, but I think that that's, I think that's why this conversation is so important. So I, I it's not really a satisfying answer maybe, but yeah. Let me, let me try, let me try to, to, what? Well, okay. Yes, because these are really interesting questions. I don't know what cities are doing this, right? I know what the city of Kirkland should be doing. And I think like what the city of Kirkland should be doing is making more easy to people to not only do middle housing, but also think about affordable housing, right? In that way, you attract more people to, to your city, right? There is... Um, we we hear from somebody from New York that they create these new rules, right? Like when you have a, a, a building, X percentage of the building has to be affordable housing. The problem that they did in New York is like at the main entrance from the beautiful building is from the, the, the park area, but the affordable housing door was in the back. That is also bad, right? Like you need to be thinking about these kind of things more than than how to attract people. And I think like at the city council will be making decisions, right? Soon to protect renters, right? Because the, the city council did they did a good job trying to pass some stuff last year, right? To renter protections. If you create more renter protections, the people will come more here to rent, right? And then that will bring diversity. And that will bring diversity not only like a race diversity, but economical diversity as well. Let me just add one more thing. I think, uh, and Guillermo, I was at the one of the earlier presentations on housing, and I, for this group here, one of the things I heard council city council member Amy Falcon say is that Kirkland is one of the worst on the east side when it comes to enough affordable housing. We are way, way behind is kind of what I heard, so, which is good on the one hand, this awareness, on the other hand, I don't know what we're going to do about it. So, so thank you again. Thank you for your presentation. I, this is actually the second time I've heard it. I think I was sitting in on a Zoom, maybe Site for All presented at some point in the past, but uh, it's, repetition is very good <laughs> to keep its important topic. Um, I had a couple more detailed questions I started earlier. One was, do we have any idea what the First Nations population was before smallpox and and what it came down to after not only smallpox but other um, tragedies that occurred, I do not know off the top of my head. That's something that I could uh, look for and try and find. I know I know national. There, I, yeah, I, I I don't know. So I think yeah, I know I've heard of other you know tribal um, you know annihilations, trail of tears, and others that you know were deeply affected. The other one was: have, Do we have any idea of if and when? The covenants were modified for all those all the covenants and neighborhoods. Have they been changed? Or are they still sitting there now? You know, what's happening with that? Um, well, there's that there's that UW archive, and I think we sent it uh, to Annie. Yeah. Um, and so you all 
Yeah, I looked at the links. It's amazing to be able to zoom in and click and see where they are. It's frightening. It, it is. I'm wondering, are they still on the books? Are they all been gone? So, so, um, and I have. I, I think you'd have to look um, a neighborhood by neighborhood, yeah. but some of them are still on the books. They're not enforceable. Um, so, but and and it's actually quite a legal hassle to undo that. And so they're just sitting there, kind of dormant, and they don't. They don't. But I. I yeah. So. so I can't speak broadly, but I do know that there are examples where they're still on the books. So right. thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thanks again for the presentation. It was super eye opening and enlightening. I think one of the takeaways that I have out of this is one thing that we can do is work on advocating the city council with regards to housing options. The other thing that this commission does is related to the grant funding. And I'm in my head, what I'm taking away from this presentation is there's a piece that's really important around housing and education around, you know, how to buy a house, what's important about it. There's a piece around affordable housing and making sure that that's available. But there's also this piece around transportation and supporting transportation. Are those kind of the two big pillars that you would talk about? That Are those the right ones that came through? Are there others that you would say, hey, it's another thing that's actually really important that didn't come up in what I said. So I just want to make sure that I got the right takeaways from the presentation. I think those two are absolutely important. And I'm obviously biased being in a transportation organization. One other thing that I would add, and maybe Guillermo or Brady can add additional details to this, but I think another thing that I've heard or that I've, that I've seen just, just kind of doing this work is the importance of community spaces physical spaces, not just, so it is about housing, of course, it is about being able to belong and have your own space. But just as important is that social infrastructure of having community centers and community events and, and, and feeling like you can be a part of a community where you live. Um, and, and that is best, that is absolutely facilitated by having physical spaces that are public and accessible and open to all. Um, so that's, that's one that comes to mind that that, that wasn't explicitly mentioned there. Um, any others, perchance? And I, I think like the other one, because you talk about like a, your role as a human resources commission and that you have the funds to, I think like a co-creation of all of that things, you know, like a, there is a lot of organizations that are working here in Kirkland, right? That you can, you can work with them, right? But like a, I always say, Advocating and doing this job is really, really hard when there is a lot of organizations that they are trying to help people find jobs, community people that to have jobs to walk through the um to the school system, right? Like how I do to get my kids to the school, uh, how to find a job, how to find a better housing. And then we ask them, like, uh, hey, do you want to come to talk with the city council? that none of them looks like you, by the way, but you can come, right? And you can talk with them and they will probably change a law after four or five years that probably will help you with the problem that you have right now. So the communities will say like, a, of course I don't have time to do that, right? I need to find a job, I need to find a house, I need to find a school for my kids, right? So there is a way that you can engage with them. And the way is to compensate for their time, right? Because a lot of the people, we have two or three jobs, right? And you need to compensate that to, to their time.
when they are participating on this, right? So co-creation, I think, is that the key word there. Hey, Gabby, by chance, do you have a question? I'm fine, Jerry. Thank you very much to all for your presentation. I got a few questions and anyone can add to it. I'm going to throw them out there. Anyone can respond. And if you want to pass on it, that's okay, too. So I think it's two questions and more of a, a story. So the first question is, how does the, the Growth Management Act uh, play into housing? How does, how does uh, Kirkland... How does Kirkland's uh, recent relaxation on ADUs, um, I think it's auxiliary That's dwellings. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And the, the story is that I, I ran for city council in 2019. My opponent was much more organized. And uh, I just decided that even though I think I might lose, I should go say something that's worth pushing this conversation, similar to what you're saying. And what I had argued for is just multiple housing units throughout the entire city. And the first comment that I heard at, this is our neighborhood housing, neighborhood association. And the, the first uh, comment was that maybe over there on 85th where there's an empty lot. And what I was gonna ask for your advice for future uh, politicians is if anyone ever has a similar, um, a, uh, comments or suggestion for voters to consider. Do you have any suggestions of how to do it? Because I had a lot of pushback, but I felt that was needed to be said. Uh, so just to clarify how, how we can message around some of these things. Uh, it, I mean, and this is something, it's funny, I have a, a packet that's about messaging around affordable housing and what works and what doesn't, and I haven't read it yet. But um, I think, I mean, for, for me, my, my usual technique is to ask what values do you, do you claim? Um, and usually like city of Kirkland has value founding values, city of Bellevue has uh, values and, and then to kind of reflect that back to them to, to say, uh, to say like, this is how we realize our, our, the, our stated values is by these policies. And that's, I mean, that's just the way that I think about it. Um, but I think that as context changes, like communication is really fluid. So I, yeah, I, that's just the way that I think about it. So I thought it was going to be a G GMA question and I was super pumped, but yeah. So. If you want to comment on that too, that's cool as well. The GMA. Uh, for, uh, I mean, I'm really excited about the GMA and the current planning process, which um, the Kirkland 2044 plan, um, this is the first year ever with uh, since, I mean, it's only since 1990 that the GMA passed, but that cities across Washington state have to not, not just like kind of plan and there's no enforcement and there's enforcement is still kind of loosey goosey in the GMA, but um, cities are required now to plan at every income level, including permanent supportive housing, including emergency housing, including, including, um, shelter. And so this, uh, this, and I know that there's been some hubbub around this in Kirkland and other East side cities when you're actually trying to cite housing that's uh zero to 30% AMI, but it's, it's very interesting that the GMA, um, and it was passed in 2021. Um, and I think it was a unique moment in time. Uh, but there's actually a component in planning now to uh, to identify and begin to undo racially disparate impacts 
And all the cities are trying to figure it out. Actually, there's an event that Eastside for All hosted recently. Um, and, and it was about having this conversation together because it's a, syst- it's a systematic, it's, yeah, it's institutional, it's systemic, it's deeply ingrained in so many things. So uh, anyways, I just think it's cool that the GMA now has something that you can point to, to try to lead planning to undo some of these impacts as well. So um, the Growth Management Act, uh, it was passed in 1990 to manage growth in Washington state. So, yeah. Um, once again, thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to throw in the comments that being a person of color born in Kirkland who currently lives in Hilton and went like through the East side school system, pretty much everything that you guys are talking about is still taking place today. Um, and some things I even hear coming from my kids today. I mean, talking about transportation, cars, who should be here, who shouldn't be here, um, everything. And it it's just, it's very present. It's not anything of the past. A lot of the stuff is still going on present day, today. Do we have any more questions for our fantastic guests? I want to say thank you again, and I also want to throw out the Kirkland mission statement really quickly because I think it's in line with what you're talking about if we execute it correctly. And it says, we are committed to to the enhancement of Kirkland as a community for living, working, and leisure with an excellent quality of life, which preserves the city's existing charm and natural amenities. Maybe the last part uh, uh, might have room for um, issue, but... um, I think that we would all agree that everyone deserves a quality of life, regardless of race and socioeconomic background or any differences that we could consider. Thank you again. Go ahead, Gildas. Yeah, um, this question's for for staff. Um, I think, um, you know, we have a wonderful opportunity with the mass transit, you know, coming into the east side soon. Like, um, so what role can we play or do we have a role to play as a, as a commission to inform um, or influence some of the policy decisions that's going to be made by the council? That's an excellent question. And in fact, this presentation set us up for an agenda item this evening because you have your joint session with council coming up. And uh, so we're, we try to do that annually. So you all sit down with council for the whole study session, an hour and a half, and you get to talk to them about these issues. And they specifically want to hear from you. They don't want you to come and ask them questions. They wanna ask you questions. They wanna hear what you're hearing, what you're thinking about. And um, you can see here that um, Jen has, has teed up some of this stuff for you based upon what you expressed as priorities so that that's your opera that's your big opportunity but there are there are more um and if i could just take one moment to to say um our presenters this evening actually um illustrated why um parks and community services has human services actually quite intricately linked um community spaces. I mean, so many initiatives in parks and community services are related to human services. 
I get that question a lot. So why is human services associated? Like they're, they, they said why. <laughs> and so. we, if we think about the most recent health fair, right, which wouldn't necessarily be something that would fall within our division and within parks, you wouldn't really see that as something in it. And it is and it talking about community and it's not just the health aspect of it. We're bringing people together to see each other, to meet each other, to hear about what resources are available and also have a sense of community and, and belonging in Kirkland, right? Which isn't, which is hard to find those types of spaces and events. Yeah. Which is one of the things the department is working on. Um, community building events very specifically is one of the things that, that we're working on. Um, I was going to kind of finish the answer to your question. That's not talking to council at your annual meeting is not the only way. Um, you can, in fact, write letters to council. If you want it to come from the Human Services Commission, there has to be a vote um, to have it represent the commission. But of course, as individuals, you're always welcome to talk to council on your own. Um, so you can write letters, you can go give public comment at um, council meetings. But then as a commission, uh, I know one thing that was discussed several years ago is how does the commission members get in touch with the community and have kind of critical conversations. And that's a difficult question, um, partially because of open meetings requirements for the meeting, but also respect for your time and your volunteer service. But, uh, but that's something interesting to think about going forward because we haven't quite answered that question. Before we move on to business, uh, I just want to highlight the uh, the anticipation for what we're going to talk about later after business. I, I felt emotional during that presentation, and I imagine he did too. And I'd use that as inspiration for what we're going to do later. That being said, the first two items of business are funding recommendations presented by staff. Jen, I'll pass it to you to introduce the opioid and ARPA funding recommendations. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. You all look so small. It's hard to not see your faces, but good to see everyone. Wish I could be there. Um, I am traveling for work to look at some other cities' ways of how we are addressing homelessness, which is really exciting. But as Jory mentioned, there are two business items tonight um, for staff recommendations for some funding that has been made available. So Give me a second to pull up my slide and share. All right, can everyone see my screen? Okay, awesome. So I have merged both recommendations into one slide deck. I'm gonna start with the opioid funding and then I'll pause for questions, discussion, before we move on to ARPA funding. So let's jump in. This is fairly short. And I'm working on one screen here, so give me a second so I can see my full slide. Okay, so 
Starting with the opioid funds, um, just a little bit of background and your packet has a lot more detail. This is really just summarizing what was included in your packet. So right at the beginning of COVID, um, there were several federal lawsuits that were brought against several opioid manufacturers and distributors, um, kind of how they have unintentionally targeted a lot of groups and populations leading to a lot of folks now living with substance use disorder and trying to manage that addiction. And I think we've all seen this firsthand in our own communities and the region as a whole, as well as on a national level. So this is not something I think is probably surprising to most folks. So fast forward to fall of 2021, that settlement um, was initiated following completion of the trial and the decision essentially saying, yes, you do owe cities money so they can reinvest into communities to help address some of the intended consequences that were brought forth with um, the manufacturers and distributors. So last year, Kirkland City Council approved a resolution which authorized the city manager for Kirkland to sign a memorandum of understanding along with every other local jurisdiction in Washington with populations over 10,000 in order to receive the settlement funds. So as a state, um, we are receiving a significant amount of money and what they have done, and this is included in the MOU that's linked in your packet, but based on population size, each city is receiving a certain allocation within the state's broader award. So the city of Kirkland is anticipated to receive of the total funding 0.54% um, that the state is receiving over the next 17 years. And this award um, represents, I believe, six different manufacturers. So some pretty big pharma companies, if you're interested in what they are, again, they're outlined in the MOU. And there's actually an additional settlement that's currently um, being wrapped up as well that's most likely going to bring in additional funds to the city. So the initial award is a bit of a moving target. We've also had one company um, declare bankruptcy. So we have a guesstimate of how much funding we're going to get. But like I said, it's a bit of a moving target until all of the settlements have wrapped up and the companies are able to pay pretty significant payout rates across um, the nation. So and a fast forwarding back to our award, um, over the next 17 years, we are receiving just over a million dollars, which if you break that out and do the math, it's about $80,000 per year, give or take. So part of the settlement that when we signed on to the MOU was in order to receive these funds, each um, subregion within the state um, must put forth an opioid abatement council, which essentially is a body that has representatives from the jurisdictions within that region. And their responsibility is tracking the funding for all participating cities within that subregion, and then reporting it back um, at the federal level, um, kind of via a reporting dashboard. So King County has offered to step in and support that in an advisory capacity. And with the MOU that we signed, 10% of the 80,000 must support um, the county's administrative function to support this body. So give or take, we're looking at about $70,000 a year currently. So 
within the MOU as well, it also outlines what um, the funds can be used for. They took a very broad approach in how these funds could be used. Um, they outlined literally hundreds of ways the funds could be used to address any aspect intersecting issue that is related to opioid use disorder and or if there's co-occurring, so substance use and or mental health. So some of the examples that I felt like were more tangible to human services um, is supporting people seeking treatment and recovery, providing access to stable housing for someone who might be experiencing homelessness and also um, living with what we say OUD, which is opioid use disorder, SUD, substance use, or MHD, which is mental health. It also can support screenings to help people seeking assistance. So um, being able to understand kind of what immediate needs are for folks and then being able to help them navigate the system to connect them with resources. Um, it can also be used for purchasing supplies. So things like naloxone purchases, um, which I know this body talked about earlier this year. And they also can support outreach and prevention programs. And they weren't specific and outreach and prevention towards substance use, opioid use, mental health. They're really trying to take a broad gamut, recognizing each region jurisdiction is unique and has different challenges and might have different ideas of funding it. So when the city first received these dollars, um, it was highlighted that they were interested in the dollars um, supporting some sort of human services um, function within the division. And so what staff are recommending is helping offset some of the funding that was put forth to support the new homeless outreach coordinator position that is a new position as of this year. Um, it provides critical services and connecting folks who are unhoused, many of whom are actively managing one of the disorders that I mentioned before, and being able to transition them into housing really helps them in that first step in being able to work towards recovery. Um, the position is currently funded um, through several different sources. So you did partially fund the outreach coordinator position with grant funding. 423-24, um, and that was carryover dollars left over from the Catholic Community Services contract when we used to contract out for outreach. And then there's additional Prop 1 funding um, that's supporting the position. Part of the reason why we looked internally in making a recommendation to support staff is because of the nature of the settlement funding, the funding is fluid. We don't know what the exact amount is. So as I mentioned, one of the manufacturers has declared bankruptcy. So that 70,000 number is kind of the rough estimate that we've done with our math. But if companies are not able to pay out settlements, that number will go down. So if we look at supporting a agency that's external and that funding gets adjusted, the city is on the hook and making um, up that difference, right? And so being mindful of that and kind of looking at the eligible uses and recognizing how this is the only position within the division that kind of supports direct service, we felt like it was a good match in being able to use these funds as well as tracking them. Um, so I'm gonna stop there and see if there's any questions. Hi, Jen. Melantha here with a question. Hi. Hi. Um, okay, so I wrote a few down. Um, I understand external versus internal, but when you say, like, support staff, like, 
what exactly is it supporting? Is it going to pay like her position or is it going to give her the option of like paying rental assistance or a down payment for someone that needs to move in or really anything as long as it's a homeless person that is categorized as someone who would deserve these funds? Yeah. Great question. Um, so it would be supporting um, the position itself. Um, so ensuring that we have sustainable funding just because it is kind of a marrying of different dollars right now. Um, so looking ahead to 25 and 26, being able to ensure that there's sustainable funding for the next 17 years. And that gives us time to source additional dollars. What um, the Homeless Outreach Coordinator position does have currently is um, kind of what you're talking about, the flexible funds account, which is already in the budget. Um, so she's able to tap into that budget to purchase move-in assistance, be able to purchase supplies to support people, um, kind of whatever they may need within reason she can do right now. And that's already budgeted. Okay, thank you. Um, and then another follow-up question. Um, you said that King County has volunteered to like do the administrative role. Um, so like who who is these people on King County or is it just, I'm not understanding who they are. Yeah, great question. Um, so it's through King County's Department of Community and Human Services. So essentially our divisions team at the county, which is much, much bigger. Um, but they have folks that are on the grant funding side, do the admin, kind of the behind the scenes. And so they felt like they had the infrastructure in place because of several other similar agreements that they have with local jurisdictions. They felt like it was in their wheelhouse to be able to take that on um, and be able to do it kind of within that 10% limit that each city has to pay into. So their, their responsibilities are making sure that each city is um, using the funds, um, using the funds, uh, sorry, my mind is blanking, that each city is um, spending the dollars appropriately and through an eligible use, which is outlined in the MOU. And then there's some pretty simple reporting that we have to do. Um, and they would take that and synthesize it for the region and then submit it back um, to the federal government. So, okay. and with this position, we are rolling out how we are collecting data. Um, so it will be pretty easy for us to be able to report that data out with this position. Okay, and then just one kind of follow-up question. Well, kind of two. So they're getting 10% for each city? Correct. Yes. And then are they putting any of that back into funding? Because that's a lot of percentage for a lot of different cities. It's a lot They're of money. Not. Huh. Interesting. So King County is supporting 38 cities. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. And then last question. I see on here there's like two different 10% breakdowns. There's a 10% administrative cost, and then 10% of the funds must support. Is that like the same 10%? So there's not it's not gonna get depleted to 60 thousand a no, year no okay that was it thank, thank you for your questions Jen just a couple of questions for you you mentioned yeah. that the total settlement dollars are in flux given the potential for companies that might go bankrupt etc how will that impact the longevity or the ongoing longevity of 
this particular position, particularly if the funding amount goes down? Like, will there be an opportunity to bolster the position through other funding mechanisms if it doesn't end up being enough or like another situation comes by like that? That's question one. And then question two is if we're shifting the funding for this position from general funds and prop one funds to this settlement funding, uh, does that give us some more flex or ability to use general funds for human services grants um, or other such things that we might be thinking of? Great questions. Um, so the first question is something our city manager and council have to deal with head on each budget cycle is being able to source dollars, especially this is a permanent position. So if the funding went down for this particular source, um, given the high priority of the position and the city really throwing a lot of resources towards coordinating how we're responding to homelessness, they would identify other sources to offset the position, um, which gives us more flexibility in being able to handle that internally versus having an award with an agency and then having to communicate that change, which could be you know, detrimental to the agency and more difficult for us to source it internally um, to then support an organization. For your second question, um, it would free up dollars within your grants budget to allocate to another agency and program. Thanks. Hi, Jen. So a uh, couple questions. I'm just going to reiterate what you just told Christian to make sure I understood. Is I think of this effectively as another 72K, assuming that it stays that amount. Like you said, there's uncertainty, but assuming it stays that amount of funds that get added to the commission's budget is how I generally think about it with, with some constraints on how the money is spent. I get that because there's some constraints. But generally, within those constraints, this is effectively an extra 72K that's added to the budget. Is that an accurate way of takeaway on my part? That was the direction we received from city leadership, yeah, that it would go towards human services. Got it. Um, the other thing, which I'm trying to remember <laughs> because it's slipping my mind, um, it's lost it. Okay. <laughs> I If I remember again before we move on, I'll ask. Otherwise, we can catch up later. Okay. Um, Jen, what is the timing of this funding getting inputted? Um, because my, my question would be, uh, since it does sound like we we're using this fund to supplant the general funding, general operating, and also from Prop One, um, will there be a recommendation how we spend those dollars at our next funding cycle? I presume, or is it something going to be done prior to the next cycle? We would look at it for the next cycle, so we would bring it to you next year and kind of show the formula and how if it goes towards this, the amount of dollars it would free up within the grants budget. All right, thank you. I remembered my question. You remembered. Yes. So I am a little confused about Prop 1 funding because there's a Prop 1 going out this year. Ah, uh, yes. And this is a Prop 1, so I presume this is an earlier Prop 1 that has some other kind of funding. So if you could <laughs> kind of clarify what that is and and what happens with this new Prop 1, is it is one go away and one's cumulative? So just not clear about the mechanics there. 
Yeah, I'm going to let Lynn take that because I think she was here when the first Prop 1 was passed and I'm blanking on the year it was passed. Lynn, can you help me out? I'm pretty sure it was 2018, but we can look up the year. So we've had, this is our third consecutive Prop 1 in the last several years. The first one was community safety. And a, a piece of that was very specifically articulated for kind of some of the same purposes as the opioid funding, but um, programs that provide for community safety, which means, you know, some of these treatment programs, housing, um, and that's actually what is funding one of our human services coordinator positions. Uh, primarily, the funding was for police because they are community safety. The second one was fire. I think that was 2020. Um, and now the third one, the current prop one, is for the expansion of parks, aquatics, and recreation. So the prop one is referring to the, it's one proposition on this ballot. So there's multiple prop ones because they're in different years. But do the prior prop ones continue or do they stop when this one takes effect? Yes, those are permanent levy lid lifts. So, so they do continue. Great question. I'll make sure to say the community safety prop one moving forward to avoid confusion. Do we have any more questions before we move on to the ARPA funding? Go ahead, Jonathan. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jen, for the um, recommendation. Um, I'm just wondering if this is the best use uh, for the dollars. And I just wonder if there's like, what are the other options that we considered? I'd, I love it if this commission received recommendations, kind of like the council does, where there's like three options and then we can debate which of the three and then come to a, a kind of a recommendation. Maybe there's one from the staff and then we can talk about it because it's hard to know if this is the best use. And I'm what I'm thinking is I'd love to see the dollars have more direct impact than going to um, fulfill a headcount. Um, and so that's, I think that was kind of lending to your, your question, Melantha, was like, how can this be used to have really more direct impact and then tied to measuring, like how, what was the results, the output that we got for the, the, the bang for the buck, so to speak, or the ROI. So um, I guess my question is, is what are the outcomes that are expected from these dollars and mm -hmm. um, uh, how will we measure the ROI? Yeah. And I, I, um, that is a great segue into some data I just pulled for the homeless outreach coordinator position. So one of the most, um, we tracked the number of households that Millie has interacted with over the last six months and starting the position. And she's interacted with 79 households over the last six months, 99 individuals of those about 40% have transitioned into some form of stability um, whether that's housing, shelter, um, and the one I think that's most notable for this group is treatment. So she has successfully placed five people into treatment that we're actively experiencing um, an SUD. And we are tracking data of the folks that she's working with and how many have disclosed that they have one of these disorders, and it's about 95%. So when we talk about ROI, um, because Melly is providing direct service, and I would say is a pretty big distinction outside of the rest of the team, um, she is directly interacting with folks who are unhoused, many of whom are experiencing behavioral health, um, substance use, as well as opioid use. 
And so she is able to be that through line and connecting them with treatment where we don't really have a lot of on the ground outreach options that are currently able to do that. And she's been able to do that successfully in the last six months. Um, so that really helps, I think, on our end, tie that together and being able to see that tangible impact um, despite this recommendation supporting staff. Like she is having a direct impact on the community because she's providing direct services. Thank you. I have a just an, another little piece of information to add that, that kind of better or paints a, a more of a picture of, of Melly's direct service. So some of you may be familiar with the Health Through Housing that's going to bring permanent supportive housing here to Kirkland at the former La Quinta. Um, uh, part of the agreement that the city made with the county is like up to 65% of those units um, are going to be set aside for local referrals. And Melly is the the city staff that will be making those direct local referrals to the 65% of those rooms. So that is another great impact that the Melly will be able to have directly with folks who are experiencing um, homelessness here in Kirkland and on the east side. I just want to make sure, Jonathan, that we address the idea of um, what were the alternative options, because it sounds like there's a good return on interest on this, or at least it sounds positive. Um, and if there's uh, no other alternatives that were explored for now, if the city staff could just follow up with us, um, possibly by email, if there is any updates to those, I, I would appreciate that as well. Um, that being said, I, I really think this is a great option. And if there's no further questions, um, is there any more questions? Oh, right by me. Um, I think that it's great with um, so the funding supporting staff and everything that she's doing. Um, so the other, the only other alternative that I would ask is that like, if the $70,000 was going to go directly into like funding a, like a specific program just for, I mean, I know that the homeless population is affected by that, but I also know there's a lot of people that are affected by it that are not homeless, um, that are going to be, that are going to be left out because they aren't homeless and users. Um, so is there a way that we could talk about that or could that be looked into as well? We can look at that. I will say at this point, because the nature of the funding is so fluid, we are not recommending funding an agency because we don't really know the extent that the total award will be paid out. So we've had one of, I believe, six already declared bankruptcy, which will significantly impact that award, which is why we're not recommending funding an agency at this time. So we're happy to provide additional alternatives, but that is not the staff's recommendation currently. Yeah, a, a quick comment on I I do I do agree with your recommendation with the staff recommendation. I think coming from an agency standpoint, um, especially with this fluid um, dollar situation, it's going to make it very unpredictable for for agencies to fund a certain headcounts in their in their in their departments. And additionally, agency typically in East Side um, they work around East Side, not Kirkland specific. And I I do really like the way that. The recommendation is really focused on Kirkland, uh, and each agencies have 
address certain populations within Kirkland. So, so we have to kind of start divvying out those dollars. Like it, it might get too diluted to make any real impact. Um, so I, 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 I think that's why they, there is that grant funding cycle that we could, you know, be more targeted and more holistic about addressing these type of issues. I totally agree with you that there are certain subsect of um, um, populations that are uh, unhoused and, you know, and substance use and housed and substance use. And, and I think we can, you know, talk about those topics uh, when we get to the the funding cycle. And I think the reality is that this shifts the funding so that we have more availability on the general funds where we have flexibility. There's restraints on this funding that prevent us from having more flexibility around it anyways. So doing it the way that the staff recommends gives us more flexibility down the road and helps us with the broader picture of funding, I think. Before we move on, does that address your concerns? Yes. All right. Yes. Sweet. Uh, I, I have a comment. Gabby. Well, I just would like to uh, second your comment about you know supporting uh, the staff recommendation for this uh, application of the money for for um, for these funds because I think uh, just the information that Jen has shared about the impact, the great impact that is having directly in people. Uh, because she's on the ground, actually going out there and doing the act the actual outreach by herself, and you know they have, we have the first hand information about how those dollars are impacting our community. So I think that that is a well a money well spent, and I, I support that completely. So I'll just kind of chime into what I think Gabby and Gilda said. I think. I used to do uh, street outreach for homeless youth uh, for a number of years. And I have to tell you the numbers that Jen talked about, Mali's success rate, they're phenomenal. It is really hard to reach that population. It's really hard to get them, 44%. I'm very impressed as she's doing an incredible job. So I'm very much in support of funding this position. Yeah, just double checking. Is this something we would vote on or is this just more of listening We don't need a formal. Oh, the answer. Okay, sounds like it's no. Um, yeah, I, I'm in support of it, and I'll retract my comment about alternatives because you addressed that concern. Um, I think what we could do is, if this group is interested, ahead of building out the priorities, we can pull data of how many agencies and programs submitted funding in 23-24 that's addressing this and what this body recommended for funding and how much was left unfunded, just to give you a sense ahead of the next grant cycle, that's something we could do. Um, and it sounds like this group is interested in receiving that information, especially new folks. Thank you. So Jenna, are you ready to go with the ARPA funding recommendations? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So moving on to ARPA. Um, so ARPA stands for American Rescue Plan Act funds. They were one of several tranches of dollars that the city received um, in federal funding support to offset the impacts of the pandemic. So the city received $10 million back in 2021 
I know this is repetitive information for some folks, but we do have some new folks. So apologize for the repetitiveness of it. Um, but when we received these dollars, a million was earmarked to support human services in the following areas. And this body helped develop this list of priorities. So housing stability and food, physical and behavioral healthcare access, and digital equity and language access. So through this body, there were, I believe, 13 projects that received funding. And in February of this year, staff came with an update on each of those projects and where they were at. So since then, many of those programs have spent down funds and we have closed out those contracts, um, many of which were done by the end of 2022, given the nature of wanting to get those dollars out the door to feel that immediate impact um, in the folks that they were serving that were dealing with disproportionate impacts of the pandemic. There's three projects that currently remain active um, and they're relevant as part of the recommendation. So I'm just gonna breeze through these three projects and just do a quick reminder of what they are and what their current status is. So the first one is the community engagement coordinator position to support Imagine Housing, um, specifically two of their properties, Francis Village and Athene. Athene is a senior affordable housing project. Um, they have about 20 units that are set aside for formerly homeless folks. And then Francis Village is a property that's right across the way from Athene and supports families. It also has set asides for several of our shelters here on the east side, specifically men and youth and young adults. And then we also have a few set asides for veterans. So um, Imagine recommended um, bringing on a full-time position during the pandemic to support community building and a sense of belonging and well-being at these two properties um, with a particular focus on their senior property. They found with the pandemic, a lot of the seniors had pretty high needs and had to be pretty careful around isolation and quarantine and they felt a lot of that impact directly at these properties. Um, they started to see an uptick in folks having a hard time connecting with one another, being able to successfully um, come to a peaceful resolution if you know there was a conflict and just overall kind of this unease and like distrust that a lot of folks had through kind of lack of interaction. And so they recommended piloting a full-time position to be intentional and creative and building additional opportunities for folks to come together during the pandemic. So this position has been wildly successful. The other element of the position was being able to connect folks with resources to ensure housing stability and be able to do some eviction prevention work, which imagine housing properties, um, the residents have received rent assistance both countywide as well as through the city. But given the nature of their income levels, they have continued to see more long-term impacts from the pandemic. And so that prioritization of eviction prevention and housing stability is really important as we start to come out of a lot of the um, kind of decisions to not increase rents or kind of um, limitations around being able to have folks be evicted. And so this position has been able to support the case managers on site to really help with that. So 
The agency has approached the city and asked for an additional $103,000 um, to support this position through the end of 2024. Originally, this position was slated to end the end of next month, and they've asked the city to um, consider allocating additional dollars to help them extend the position until they can apply for funds through Kirkland for 25-26. So they've talked about the importance of the relationship this position has built um, and outline kind of the different objectives of the position and the success that they've seen. And they really don't want to have to see kind of a, a disruption in the impact this position has had. Um, so that is one of the recommendations that we are coming to you tonight. The second project um, is around homeless coordination on the east side. Um, and this was really intended to develop a streamlined approach to homelessness among different east side cities. We all fund the shelters um, at different levels, but we have continued to affirm our commitment over the last, I would say, probably three, four grant funding cycles that we want to continue to fund shelters. So trying to figure out how to streamline that in the most appropriate way. There's no additional funds anticipated at this time, and we do expect this contract to be closed by the end of this year. And then the final one is the most significant one that's still active and will be active through the end of 2024, and that was the additional one-time ARPA funding that was allocated to um, recommend funding all three options that the commission put forward to council for 23-24. So... Um, those one-time funds um, were prioritized by council to go towards housing stability programs and behavioral health. And so the agencies and programs that receive that are listed here. We can go into the specifics of the programs, um, but hopefully you're fairly familiar with those and can remember kind of what those programs do. With some of our projects being closed out um, the end of 2022 and into 2023, there are some dollars that are um, available that are still earmarked for human services. And so we are coming back with recommendations of what to do with that leftover dollar amount. So um, I'm actually going to jump to this first before I go to the full recommendations. So Three of the programs that are within the housing stability and behavioral health that received one-time funding um, were close to being fully funded, but they were not fully funded. Um, and that you're all very familiar. Um, we know that the demand far exceeded the resources available. Um, but what staff did is we pulled the seven agencies that received funding through the one-time funding and pulled those that did not receive full-time funding. And so this is our attempt to make those requests for 23-24 as whole as possible. So you can see two of the programs are recommending receiving full funding with this leftover amount. And then the third program is at 96%, which I think is as close as we're going to get. So going back to this, um, we are recommending approving Imagine's one-time request. Um, and when 2024 wraps up, um, they would, uh, they would um, submit an application um, for this position specifically as part of the grants review. So it would come to you all to kind of reevaluate at that point in time if you do want to continue to fund it. And then with the remaining $35,000, um, 
funding these three agencies and programs to fully fund two of the programs and almost fully fund the third. Questions? So I just want to get the numbers correct. So we have a total of 103K plus 36K almost that we can fund. Uh, we have that much funds that you can allocate. That's remainder for the ARPA stuff that was not, that's been, that's come back to us or something. I'm, not, I'm trying to understand. Sure. So the 35,000 is ARPA um, and it was earmarked for human services. So it was left over after we closed several of our other contracts. So there were a few agencies that did not fully expend. The 103,000 is pulling from um, a larger bucket of funds. So that is not currently earmarked for human services. Um, but city leadership gave the green light for this body to consider recommending it since it received funding um, with human services ARPA dollars originally. Okay, thank you. That that answered that question. The, um, the other thing I had was, so uh, I just wanted to share something. I was at the wellness fair I talked to this lady from ELAP actually, mm -hmm. and she told me that like the position that we're talking about here is a position of an attorney. Mm -hmm. She said that she had to return money because it was not fully funded. It was not fully funded. Well, you can't hire a person because if you can't pay the full person, you can't hire anybody. So I'm just asking, will this additional, I don't know, six or $7,000 that we add actually change anything material there? I mean, you know, in, because you know, I, I don't know if that was, this position or something else. See, I don't know which position it was, but she did tell me they had to return money to the cities because, you know, and what she was trying to emphasize was that if you're not fully funded, depending on the position, services, yeah, you can do less. But when it's a position, you either hire the position or not. So I just want to make sure for giving them that additional funding that it's actually something they can make use of. Amanda can speak to this because she's laid for the contract, but they have not returned funding to the city of Kirkland. I don't think that impacted us. I could give just a, a little bit more insight into that. Um, so ELAP does fund several different um, cities and there are several different programs. Um, for this, for the city of Kirkland specifically, there is a um, a, a, a Kirkland specific attorney who is there and she is full time. So I think um, I, I don't um, I think I, I know who you were you were talking about um, at, at ELAB. I was actually just visiting um, the organization uh, earlier this week. Um, I think it is for a different program and for a different city that they're trying to hire. But the the services that um, that we are contracted with with the CEO of Kirkland is is stacked. So I think um, I'm giving you a very general question and I can dig and give you more specifics, but um, but I can assure you that the program and the contract we have with our city, uh, Kirk Kirkland specific attorney, um, funds, funding is not being returned and it is is being very well spent. Right, that, thank you. But I, I think one of the other reasons that this got flagged for me is we are funding an attorney and we're adding $6,500 more. So I'm like, what What on earth is that going to help with any funding of a human being? I, I think that's the a, sta a position. So I was a little, con I was not able to map that. So I just would like some more clarity on that. It's good, really good that they have returned Kirkland's money. I'm happy to hear it was not Kirkland, but I'm just saying that yeah. it, it is something when I look at a position and it's a small amount, I'm like, 
what how is it helping is, is still a question that I am no I think I think that is a, a great question and very relevant and are will is it okay if I follow up with you with more specifics okay thank you um and I just wanted to add um as someone who knows individuals who have used Eastside legal program sometimes those funds are used for individuals who are faced an eviction and they will just like pay the rent or something to keep them from, or they will do different things where the funds will maybe just be four or $5,000, but they'll use them for different people. So if it's not just for a position, sometimes it could be reallocated and the $60,000 could help many households. Is that possible? Can they do that? Can they use the money when it's tagged for head counties for resources that was i was going to dig into the specifics of the programs that we're actually funding um i do know that as a consortium the other uh, north and east uh county funders other cities um are um funding specific programs that go directly toward rent assistance i don't want to misspeak i don't want to give you wrong information and so that's why i want to go back and, and see specifically which programs um that we're funding but yes uh, melantha is very correct that elap does offer uh rent assistance and other type of um direct um support yeah and i, I should just qualify i think melantha reminded me of this when i was talking to vivian she did say that certain grants are more flexible and allow them to use the funds for this kind of stuff. There are other grants that are not flexible and they cannot use it. So, mm -hmm. so I think a lot depends on the nature of the grant. Right. So, yeah. so, so I think that, and if this is one of those flexible grants, then great. Yeah. This is helping some people and that's perfect. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. And, and like I said, I will follow up specifically with uh, which programs that we're funding and what that looks like in practice. The last business item is finalizing the preparation for commission's joint meeting with the city council on Tuesday, October 17th. Staff want to provide an overview of the draft memo and agenda and discuss meeting expectations. I'm going to pass it over to Jan, excuse me, Jen and Annie. Okay. I'm going to make this quick because I know that we are at time um, and you all were hopefully able to review the memo that was included in the packet. Um, let me just, again, I'm working with one screen here. So just give me a second. So what staff have done is we have met with both the chair and vice chair to go over a rough outline for that meeting. Um, and what we are recommending as kind of a general outline is starting with introductions. So um, having each commissioner introduce themselves, name, pronoun, the amount of time that you've been on the commission. Um, and Jory will facilitate that. And you will all have name cards um, on the table. Um, but being able to just have council know who's in the room and kind of length of time on the commission from there, um, Jory is going to kind of provide an overview of the topics that this group identified as wanting to bring to council. So being able to, Gabby. Are you presenting anything? Because there is nothing on the screen. Just just, just wanted to know. 
I am not. I'm just looking at a document on my oh, screen. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you for asking though. It's just a Word doc. So I'm, I'm happy to send this out afterwards. Um, so Jory will oversee um, kind of, or I'm sorry, provide an overview of the three agenda items that this group had talked about. Um, and then between Jory and Gabby, they will kind of essentially establish the why and purpose of why we invite folks coming in kind of during that off year um, and how that helps inform the priorities that this group has to create because you continue to get so many applications for so much funding. Um, and so we have within the memo and we'll make sure that you all have it for that evening um, reminded council of the amount of funding requests that you have had. Um, and despite the level of investment in funding, all three options that we still funded the smallest percentage that we ever have. Just get, again, given the volume and the amount of ask that we saw from the community. So kind of from there and painting that context, um, being able to talk about how COVID has changed the landscape the last time this group met. Um, was pre-pandemic. So a lot of things have changed. The commission has changed. Um, and being able to kind of speak to that and what you're thinking about ahead of 25, 26. So it really tees up a discussion with council to, one, discuss kind of the feasibility of a needs assessment. This is something this group continues to ask staff and staff are able to kind of piecemeal like different needs assessments, different strategic plans, um, but Kirkland has not done a needs assessment specifically for Kirkland that would really um, could help guide priorities for this body, um, you know, saying like food is number one or housing is number two and access to community spaces is number three without doing a formal needs assessment staff are limited in the data that we're able to share with this group, which limits your ability to kind of have that significant impact that we often talk about. Um, so it's talking about a needs assessment um, and being able to hear from you why you think that would be helpful um, ahead of the grant cycle. So in the memo, we included that almost every neighboring city has gone through the process in the last couple of years where they've initiated that. Um, and then the other question is around funding. Um, and kind of thinking about sustainable funding moving forward, recognizing the amount of um, asks that this group gets, and if they're still interested in structuring recommendations in the same way that you have done in years past. So kind of doing that option A, option B, option C, and then for lack of a better word, just like drawing a line and saying, if you fund option A, here's all the other things that won't get funded. If you fund all three, here's how much, you know, additional one-time funding we'd need. So this group continues to ask about sustainable funding versus one-time. And so that question will help tee that up for a discussion with council. And then the third item was around um, kind of how to strengthen the relationship between the commission and the city's DEIB work plan um, and kind of what that could look like um, and being able to have a conversation with them. So those were the three big issues that came out of that. Again, we we talked with Jory and Gabby and felt like that summarized as a whole um, what the commission was interested in. So I think um, what we're looking for is there's two areas where several people on the commission can kind of 
be able to share out, but for the most part, we are going to recommend that Jory and Gabby lead most of the discussion. Um, but we are going to have a section in the outline where we're going to invite everyone who's present to be able to kind of jump in and share what they're thinking about ahead of the next grant cycle. So council has an opportunity to hear from each of you and then kind of asking the two um, issue questions that are outlined in the memo. Um, if someone's interested in asking those, Jory and Gabby wanted to see who might be interested in posing those questions to council. So I know we're short on time, so I don't know if there's- I don't mind volunteering. Okay. I will follow one of them. I don't know. Pick one. I don't care. Uh, Jory, just I think based on the comment, uh, based on the presentation tonight, I would love for you and Gabby to think about um, um, perhaps in the open discussions to also include what is the role for this commission in doing in doing the uh, transit mm -hmm. um, that that hub uh, planning. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, you you said only transit because um, the the presentation was also about. Uh, housing so just transit yeah like so so in um i think one of the best practice that that i have read um is is you know in any kind of mass transit hubs that you build like you know affordable you have a mixed use affordable housing so like not saying that that is the the solution you know for kirkland but but i think as a as a as a human service commission like you know like what role can we play you know to help influence the city thinking about building building that hub out for kirkland Hey, Jen, I just had a logistics question. Um, is the meeting time bound? Like, do we know it starts at 530 and ends at a certain time or is it open ended on the uh, back end? So it's 530 to about 657. Okay. I will I will say that um, I have seen a tendency for things to be added. So there is the potential that an additional agenda item could be added to the study session. That's what happened for October 3rd, which was the main driver in shifting it to the 17th, is it was really limiting the amount of time that this group had. So I say that with an asterisk because something could get added depending on the city manager's direction. Thank you. I just had one uh question or ask rather um so this briefing has already been sent to the city council jen it, it has not it's just a draft oh, it's a draft okay so i, I mean that i love the table i think that was really impactful in terms of you know what the requests are and what that is i had two questions around that one is more asks one is could we break down of those total funds available, how much was the base budget and how much came from other sources? Because I think that would really help highlight for the city what, you know, what is the city's ongoing contribution? And I would be good to understand too. So it's not very clear because some of these big numbers could be one-time things that you talked about. So it would be great if we could have another column maybe highlighting what the city's base budget is. Okay. Um, the other thing I was thinking here would be, it would be awesome if we could have another row that says 2025, 2026, with some numbers and what we think is projected for funds requested and funds available, because I think that'll paint, it could paint a really stark picture of where we're heading to, given that a lot of one-time funds are likely to go away and the need is only increasing year over year. 
So if there's any data that you could use to produce that number, I feel like that would have a pretty solid impact on kind of on the discussion to to kind of just say how what what are we looking at you know next year when we do the funding cycle. So, sure. but I, I overall I think this was great. It was a really job well done. Thank you. Great feedback. Thank you. Okay. We'd have to range it based off of the options, right? Like, because you're presenting options later on in the document for how much it would be. Is that um, would be the input into your document for how much would? No, be I I think this is about the need more than anything. Oh, else. I see. It's, it's yeah. more. It's not saying fund this much. It's uh, I see. Like, if you look at 2023, 24, it says the community has asked for yep. about 8.7. Yep. But we only funded 4.7. Yep. And that was in a in a funding rich situation where we had tons of one time funds, right? And so. If you're imagining that you know the need is increasing, I don't know another 20, 30 percent, and the funding is probably reducing, I think then what we could fund is going to be so it's just painting a picture of what the situation could be like. I don't think it changes the options. It was just painting a picture. That's all I was thinking. If you could do that. Like a prediction. It's a prediction. When I was looking at it, it was looking like the funds requested besides for 2021 and 2022 almost doubled every year. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just the pattern that I saw. I'm pretty sure there's a way that we can do it graphically um, with like a prediction, if, but I completely agree. Do we have any other questions or comments? <clears throat> so one request I have uh, in a perfect world where it's not 845, essentially, um, if you find any of the eight organizations that we have talked about uh, interesting or rather you have a personal like vested um, value to these or they connected with you what would help is uh, if we somehow divvied up what organizations you'd want to specialize or focus on for the conversation to go in depth with the questions that we might get from city council that would help I don't think it's the time of day to do that right now but that is something that uh, I would like us to consider uh, if I don't know the exact process of if that's allowed to do it through email, but uh, at the very least, just consider which organizations you want to focus on. Pick one, two, if that. And if there's overlap, that's okay. But uh, pick the ones that you are most passionate about. And Jen and Annie, do you, do you have any other closing remarks before um, I wrap up for this? Go ahead, Sri. Go ahead, Sri. One more suggestion. Um, so the, I saw the survey data from the 2022 wellness fair, and I felt like it was like, if you look at the, some of the data in terms of how many of them don't have health insurance, stuff like that, it felt like there was some really, it's anecdotal, but it was some really good information on kind of, you can say the state of the community and the, and the needs. I was just going to suggest that maybe that be included in the briefing if they don't already have it from before. Because uh, I didn't see it mentioned. I saw the Hope report mentioned. I didn't see that service. I was just going to suggest maybe that'd be another data piece of data to share with the city council so they have you know, a better sense of kind of the extent of the need that we're seeing in the community. I think the, the challenge with that is where we have lots of people from different places to connect that directly to Kirkland, I think was, would be a challenge, but we can look at it. And also like, that's really, it's broad, it's important, but how would that directly link to, 
Are you talking about healthcare? Are you talking about work, employment? Are you talking about education? Like, I mean, I, I know that it really links to all those things, but I think the bigger thing is like, how does that directly link to our Kirkland community in, um, in that number? So we can take a look at it though, and see if there's some indicator that can, yeah, we can I, support I think that's, that. a, that's a great point. I mean, I was, you know, it's, it's still, we're part of East side. So it's still an indication of probably everybody there is from the East side. So it's still kind of an indication of East side and the situation. And the other reason I was thinking of it is we, one of our asks is to say we need a needs assessment. <laughs> and so this kind of says there's a bunch of need here in the community. So it feels like a way to connect the dots. We kind of say, you know, not necessarily to say that this is the problem, but to say we have a lot of need and we better do a, we need to do more of a job to do a needs assessment. It's kind of how I was thinking we could, you know, bring that in. So that's just a suggestion. Okay. I think I, I, I almost called Annie Abby. Can you tell it's 847? Annie is going to send a follow-up um, of her section to the group later so we can all go home. Um, hey, Jen, do you mind reading out the questions or pointing out where they are in the agenda that the volunteers uh, would be asking? I'll send it out and I'll highlight it. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We look forward to seeing everyone on October 17th for the joint meeting. This meeting is a hybrid meeting, but I highly encourage everyone to attend in person. If you must call in, let Jen know in advance so we can make sure you have a panelist link. Uh, I'll also add, for anyone that can't make it, uh, we've had it communicated, so there are some schedule conflicts. Uh, I, I know people who would otherwise want to be there if they can't make it. So, again, please be there. Expect, to, expect you to be there, but life also happens, and uh, we've had communication about this already with individuals that uh, cannot make it. Do we have any commissioner reports? We do, but we have we're way over time. So if you make it quick. Well, I just wanted to quickly do a report on the wellness fair because I was there and I talked to a number, I talked to about seven or eight different organizations there, you know, who are I mentioned one of them already, ELA, but I talked to a number of them. And I just wanted to kind of kind of if I were to summarize my big takeaways, one was what kept coming up today, or the first presentation today, affordable housing. That kept coming up again and again. Every organization I talked to, they said, house, affordable housing is a problem. Eviction is a problem. Rental assistance, you know, all these things. And, you know, rental assistance is a band-aid. It doesn't really help. So I think that kept coming up again and again. And both in the context of people living in the, who are, you know, you can say low income or below AMI, but not just that, but also a lot of the nonprofits, they their staff cannot afford to stay in Kirkland. That's the other angle that they're coming from is they cannot afford to stay in the city. And that to me, so I think we have a huge problem around affordable housing. I don't think that's news, but I just wanted to say, I kept hearing that message again and again and again. Um, and uh, the other message that I also heard was, I would say more around Many of the, you know, because I would keep asking and, you know, this came up at another forum I was into where we ask for data from all these agencies and the agencies say, well, where's the funding to gather the data? Because they are spending all the time providing services and they're like, we don't have time 
to gather data, process data, and there is an apparently human services dollars cannot be used. That's what I was told. I don't know if this is correct, but I was told cannot be used to fund, you know, the data stuff and, and the community gathering the data. So it feels like there is a gap somewhere in there where if we're asking for data from these agencies, we got to also help them give us the, collect the data and give it to us. So, so that's probably the, those are the top two things that I kept hearing at the wellness fair. Can I just do a follow-up question? I know that we were talking about like how to engage with the community as commissioners or just volunteers. So maybe when we do figure out how to collect the data, like if we can actually engage and do that as a commissioner or just once again, a community member. Um, I think that's just kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Do we have any other commissioner reports? Staff reports. Okay. Um, I actually have one last thing that I want to mention. One my request for you too um, is that it's almost homework. Make sure that you connect with the city council members and develop those relationships where it's an ongoing conversation. It doesn't just end on the 17th. Is there a motion to adjourn this meeting? Is there a second? Second. Let's go home. <laughs> Thanks, so. all. Thank you very much. Thank Have you.